I'm Jackie McGuire, and this is my podcast, Mind Brew. I'm a clinical psychologist with a passion for science communication. What does that mean? Well, it means I not so secretly love researching psychological studies, translating them into easy-to-understand concepts, and providing practical strategies to optimise personal well-being, work, and relationships. Put simply, Mind Brew has been created to help you live the good life. In this pilot episode, I talk with organisational psychologist Adam Grant on personal and business resilience during COVID-19. For those of you who might not have come across Adam's work, consider him the Richie McCaw of his field. Adam is Wharton University's top-ranked professor, author of four New York Times bestsellers, host of TED Podcast Work Life, has delivered two TED Talks with more than 20 million views, is an advisor to the Pentagon, and, well, I could go on, but I think you've got the gist. Get ready to percolate on what COVID life has looked like for you and the people in your life, what the future might bring, and how you may be able to move forward with renewed strength and meaning. I hope you enjoy. Thank you so much for um, joining me today. And Don't hate me yet. <laughs> well, fingers crossed, Adam. I was trying to work out how I could explain to New Zealanders that potentially weren't across your work or weren't in the psychology field about who you were. And the best I came up with was you're the Michael Jordan of psychology. So hopefully that's a compliment to you. But I'm obviously... I'll try to take it as one. <laughs> I'm obviously a clinical psychologist. You're an organisational psychologist. And so before we start, I thought maybe you could explain perhaps the difference in terms of what you do and what your work is focused on. Well, I think you should explain the difference, really, because, you know, clearly I have issues and those need to be resolved. But, you know, whenever I tell people I'm an organizational psychologist, they either think that I'm going to cure their OCD or that I can somehow organize their closet. And I definitely can't do either. Um, As you know, what I try to spend most of my time doing is figure out how can work be better. So I've spent a lot of my career studying how we can redesign jobs to make them more meaningful and motivating how we can make teams more creative and even organizational cultures a little bit more collaborative and productive. So I guess my mission is to make work suck just a little bit less. I was going to say more eloquently. Would you describe clinical psychology as different? Well, and I'm a bit of an anomaly because I'm a clinical psychologist that works with organizations. So I cross that barrier. But a traditional clinical psychologist is trained to work with people to formulate what's going on with their life why are they experiencing the things they are experiencing, what's happened in their life to lead to that place, and what would be helpful in targeting their situation, their context, their stresses to help improve their life. And I suppose for me with psychology, what's been most useful for me is Martin Seligman's words, and I re-paraphrase them, which is, you know, we've spent all our life working how to get people from crap to average, but actually how to, you know, <laughs> how do we focus on the flourishing, thriving, and that for me is where my interest lies. Love it. So, Adam, I thought we'd start with currently at the moment we have a global pandemic. New Zealand has been in lockdown for four weeks, but we also have an economic recession going on. And I've been talking about we've got a crisis within a crisis is kind of the language I've been using in our media. And we both know that in both of those circumstances, mental health and well-being can be impacted. But on the other side of that, 
I think challenges and crises provide a real opportunity for enhanced well-being, enhanced resilience, and potentially even growth coming out the other side. So I wanted to ask in your words, because maybe they'll be different from mine, what is resilience? And when you've been talking to people through COVID, what are your top strategies for enhancing their life, their well-being through this time? Sure, I'm happy to try. So I think about resilience as the speed and strength of a response to adversity. And so it's it's basically how quickly we bounce back and then also how fully we recover. You know, I think in a lot of cases, that's where most people stop. If we can just get back to normal, we'll be in really good shape. As you well know, there's a lot of evidence that, that some people don't get there. So a lot of people, I think, will come out of this crisis with a version of PTSD. Mm. which seems to affect roughly 15% of the population. And post-traumatic stress is real. It's painful, it can be devastating, and you're the expert in that arena. I'm definitely not. But what I was so intrigued by is the evidence that there's a much more common response than post-traumatic stress, which is post-traumatic growth. That, as you know, is the idea of not just bouncing back, but bouncing forward. That people come out of crisis either with a deeper sense of gratitude, saying, you know, I, I used to take for granted that I had a job. And with unemployment as rampant as it is, I appreciate that in a way I never did before. Yeah. In some cases, it's a, it's a greater sense of personal strength. I got through that. I can get through almost anything. Mm. For a lot of people, it's seeing new possibilities, finding greater meaning and purpose, and coming away too with stronger relationships, having bonded with people through shared suffering in a way that was really difficult otherwise. And so I guess, you know, if there's a silver lining in this whole crisis, that would be my hope. Mm. Know, for example, that when people finish college during a recession, even a decade later, they're significantly happier with their jobs. Regardless of what industry they go into, how much they get paid, how much they like their work, they know how hard it was to get a job. And they say, okay, well, I'm I'm lucky, even if my work isn't perfect, I'm lucky to have something that puts a meal on the table and that pays the bills. And so I guess, you know, that's what I would aspire to. I think, though, that I have to say, watching New Zealand, I think there's a whole nother way of defining resilience. It says it's not just bouncing back or bouncing forward. It's preventing the crisis or hardship from happening in the first place. You've obviously done that brilliantly. So part of my mission tonight or this morning in your world or this afternoon in your world is to figure out, yeah, how do we get the prevention part of resilience right as opposed to just the response? And my thinking is if we're going to come out of this in a post-traumatic growth, because yes, I think New Zealanders would say, and a Colmar Bronton poll came out today, Adam, which 88% of New Zealanders think that we have responded to COVID-19 in the right way. I mean, that's huge. 88? 88%. Who are the 12%? I know. Well, well, I was... Come come to America. (laughs) But I'm like, (laughs) that's massive, right? To have that proportion of a country behind its leadership and thinking that we've got the right strategy. However, there's definitely been conversation in the media around the economic impact of that. And for example, it was, let me check, 42% of our people have been economically impacted by this compared to 29% of the G7 countries. So we've got a huge proportion to shame we've got it right, but we also have almost double the amount of people that are really financially struggling from this. So I think that's an interesting kind of cross equation. But my question then is, if we want to be in that post-traumatic growth out of this economic crisis, out of this pandemic, how do we get in that group? I don't know. I just I just study this stuff, right? <laughs> so I oh, you teach me things that I don't know, Adam. I think this is a hard question. Obviously, there are micro and macro answers to that question. And as psychologists, we tend to think about the micro dynamics. 
Because I feel like that means I'm out of my depth when it comes to asking, okay, economically or in terms of you know public policy, what kind of change is needed? I don't know, right? That's not what I do for a living. I think what, what I would say is, is to go back to our mutual friend, Marty Seligman here, that the first thing we can do is we can control the way we process these kinds of events. You can't obviously influence the economy yourself. You can, though, change your response to what effects the economy, the economy has. And so, you know, when I think about the research on how to help people on a micro level, I think right away about a great Jamie Pennebaker experiment where uh, people who are laid off from their jobs, who are unexpectedly just told one day, you know what, you don't work here anymore. Good luck. Some of them were randomly assigned to do something that nearly doubled their odds of getting a job in the next few months. And I thought, okay, you know, it's going through a massive job search workshop. It's getting serious skills training. It's a referral from, you know, from somebody who's highly placed. No, it was keeping a journal. Yeah, interesting. Their thoughts and emotions around the job search. And it, it turned out that people who journaled about what it was like to suddenly have their livelihood torn out from under them, they formed a story. And they were able to, to I think, better process what they were going through. Did it and matter the nature to, of their story? Did it matter the emotional valence of that journaling? It doesn't seem to. Uh, so it didn't seem to matter a whole lot what they wrote about, as long as they wrote about both thoughts and emotions. Right. And you know, at first, that was really painful. And it's, it's not that fun to start writing a story about how, you know, somebody just swept the rug right out from under your feet. And one day you had secure employment and the next day it's gone. Mm. In the ensuing weeks and months after that, people were, you know, they were able to move forward. They started journaling about, okay, you know what? I can't control the event that happened to me, but I can certainly control my response to it. And, you know, I want to be the kind of person who aces the reaction to getting fired, even if I didn't ace the job in the first place. So, you know, I think that's something we all have control over, right? We all have opportunities to tell those stories. So I'm going to turn this around on you. <laughs> you work yeah. with both individuals and organizations on telling stories about hardship and difficulty. Yeah. What, do you, what do you think is the best place to start? If, whether we're doing it in a journal, whether we're talking to somebody close to us, how do you think about forming that story in a way that's life-giving? Well, I was listening to you thinking about emotion regulation, which is critical for well-being and mental health, which is when we talk or when we write, our brain starts to process. And once our amygdala calms down, once we process, we can then start using our higher order thinking and we can plan and future forward and, and start making decisions that are helpful for us in our life. So I think whether it's writing or talking, maybe that doesn't matter, but it's actually doing something with your emotions and with your thought process rather than just sitting and ruminating is how I would take that. I think that makes a ton of sense. And, you know, I've, I've watched a lot of people in the last few weeks. Uh, of what, you've had 16 people die in all of New Zealand? Yeah. In this pandemic, that's incredible. I can name more people that I either know or are close to people I know than that who have lost their lives just, just here in the US. And a lot of people are responding to that by just saying, I've got to push the emotions out. I don't have time for them. I don't have the energy for them right now. I'm juggling kids in online school. I'm trying to do my job from home. This is, this is just too hard. And I think that that completely flies in the face of what I know about emotion regulation, which says, look, if, if you actually name the emotion, it doesn't all of a sudden leave the emotion to overpower you. It gives the emotion some space to move through you. Yeah. And I think that that's something that probably those of us who like to be professional and efficient and focused and productive don't appreciate enough. And 
maybe intimately familiar with people who operate that way because I am one of them. But don't, don't think about a pink bunny on top of my head, huh, Adam? And and that's grief in a whole new realm, I suppose, compared to many New Zealanders. We of course have some families that are experiencing huge grief, but not on the scale of the US. My next thought, Adam, is here in New Zealand, and you may not be aware of this, we have a very historic culture of do-it-yourself, of she'll be right, mate, of stoicism. And so asking for help for many people is hugely shaming and doesn't happen very well here. We currently have queues around the blocks of people lining up for food parcels. And so, you know, I know you have done some research on giving and help-taking, and I wanted to know from you, how do we better help people learn how to reach out and how to move past that she'll be right I'm going to do it on my own especially in times like this yeah I think at a time like this self-reliance is a huge barrier I don't think we ever do anything alone right so in the U.S. we talk about people who are self-made mm. I think that's a ridiculous phrase no, nobody's self-made nobody's self-made anybody who's achieved anything has had an incredible support system and a tremendous amount of luck behind them And I guess the first thing I would say to people who are having trouble asking for help is to just look back on your life and think about all the times you benefited from other people's help and where you would be if you didn't let a teacher or a mentor or a family member or a friend or a boss stick their neck out for you in a situation where you really needed it. And I guess that goes to to a second point, which is when you study all the dynamics of giving and helping in organizations. So I've been doing this for almost two decades. And when I first started studying, how do we get people to be givers rather than takers? I thought, okay, what we need is we need more people to proactively offer help. That's the answer. Because if I'm offering, then you're not going to feel as uncomfortable. You don't have to ask that way. Well, it turns out most of us are busy. And there aren't that many of us sitting around saying, you know, I'm kind of bored this week. How can I enrich your life? Right? That, That just doesn't happen that often. The data suggests that 75 to 90% of all helping and giving, at least at work, starts with somebody making a request. Mm-hmm. Somebody saying, you know, I'm, I'm stuck on this. I would love some advice. You know, could you pitch in and help me out? And so if we don't ask, there are a lot of frustrated givers who would be happy to be helpful, mm-hmm. if only who could benefit and how. And so, you know, I guess, I guess I'd like to turn this around on people and say, look, you know, we, we can actually have this conversation right now. So you clearly enjoy helping other people. Tell me why. Me? Yeah, you. Well, it's interesting because I've come out of parental leave to do work like this during COVID. And why? For me, it's about I have a skill to offer and there are people in need and I want to be able to help enrich and support other people through struggle if I can. I mean, that sounds lovely, but why? What's, what's the value or motivation behind that? And it makes me feel good doing it. Really? Yeah. I'm sorry, did you say you enjoy helping other people? I do. So it's so interesting that you feel that way. Do you think you're the only person who feels that way? No. So how could you deprive other people of that joy? Yeah. Not asking them. Yeah. Like that's the question I always want to ask. Like, what a jerk you are. <laughs> if, if you get so much joy out of helping other people, if it makes you feel valued and appreciated, if it helps you feel like you matter and you make a difference, if you never ask anyone for help, yeah. then preventing them from experiencing that joy. Well, isn't that a great point then? So instead of people focusing on their own shame or what help brings to them, shift that mindset because often we get motivated by other people huh? and how we can impact others. So shift it's so mindset. true. Yeah. I guess if I ask you for help, I'm giving you the gift of the joy of giving. Yeah. Right? <laughs> that, that might be the way to think about it. So, 
It sounds a little ridiculous when you say it that way, but I do think it leads a lot of relationships to get out of balance. Uh, so I've, one of the things I've seen in my data over and over again is people get uncomfortable if they're in a friendship or they're in a close working relationship where the other person is always the giver. Mm. It makes them feel like they're too needy or too dependent or they're not doing their part. And they'll say, hey, you know what? I want to be able to help too. I guess we should all remember that in great relationships, both people give with, with no strings attached. And so if we're ashamed to ask, then we're basically preventing a meaningful relationship from existing. Reciprocity, huh? Adam, how do you think we're all going to come out of this pandemic? When we return to normal life, how do you think humans are going to respond? I don't know. I think, I think it's a dangerous exercise to try to predict the future. Mm. There's an old saying that historians can't even predict the past. Yeah. So we, should, we should be very careful when we try to make forecasts. I suppose my angle for that was around how we're going to relate to other people because connections are so important and relationships are so important. And are we going to have this anthrophobia where people are fearful of others when they're around, you know? And, and if so, how the heck do we get around that? Yeah, I think we'll see some of that. If I had to bet, I would say we're going to see probably increased physical distance, but maybe also increased emotional closeness. Mm. People are going to realize, as a lot of us have, as we do FaceTime or Zoom or whatever your preferred video conference platform is, that you don't always have to be in the same room as someone to feel close. Mm. You don't have to physically touch them to feel like you've, you've really connected emotionally. People will probably be, they'll probably be a little wary of, of coming face to face. And, you know, we're even a little bit wary of that now. <laughs> there's, a, there's a funny Jeremy Balinson study at Stanford where basically he puts people in front of a, a computer and he turns on a Zoom conference. And what do you see when you turn on a Zoom conference? You see a large virtual head. And what most people do in response to that is they flinch. It really makes them uncomfortable. And I think that flinching response is not just going to be virtual. I think we're seeing it already. In the U.S., when people go out for walks, they get really uncomfortable. Did you ever have um, the arcade game Frogger in New Zealand? Well, not that I'm aware of, but that doesn't mean we didn't have it. It was a game where you, you were a frog and you had to basically navigate through traffic. And there were, there were all these cars that would advance. Uh, there was once a Seinfeld episode about it. It was probably what made it most famous. But it seems like people are doing that here. You, know, you see somebody walking or riding their bike down the street and you immediately run to the other side of the street. You don't want to get too close. And I think it's going to take a while for us to unlearn those instinctive reactions. But I don't think that means we won't open up to people. I think this has made people vulnerable in a way that, that a lot of us weren't before. I think a lot of us have shared experiences, whether it's realizing, huh, a lot of people are working from their closets and <laughs> we seem to have similar home office setups. Yeah. Or, you know, a lot of people are, are becoming the BBC dad where their kids are just kind of dancing into their conferences. I think that's humanized for a lot of us. It's humanized work. It's humanized the people we work with. It's humanized our neighbors in ways that we might not have seen before. And so I'm hoping there's, there's a brighter side of that too. What do you think? I think so too, Adam. My husband and I were talking about this last night in relation to Zoom and interactions and team dynamics and how in some ways Zoom can lend itself to the loudest person on the screen dominates. But in the other sense, it equalizes everyone because body language doesn't kind of impose over other people or <laughs> you're aware of how much you speak because the yellow box turns up around you. So you can actually kind of start to kind of filter for yourself, actually, how much is this an equal relationship or am I dominating or not contributing enough, et cetera. So I think it absolutely has brought some high quality connections for people through this time, which are important and made people pause and really start to think about what's important in life and, and who is in their life. So yeah, me too. Hope that there's a, 
that there's silver linings from this as we exit out of this bubble world that we're living in. Fingers crossed. If we come to workplaces now, Adam, which is your bread and butter, the organisations you're working with in the US, what are your like headline topics, advice that you are discussing with orgs at the moment as they navigate this new reality? So I think the, the big questions that are coming up seem to fall into three categories. The first one is, how in the world do we help everyone stay productive and collaborative working from home? Mm-hmm. And I'm hearing that especially from organizations that almost had a religious objection to the idea that people wouldn't come into the office to work. Yeah. You know, it's, it's actually, I hate to say I told you so, but <laughs> with a few of these companies, I've, uh, I've had ongoing conversations for two, three years saying, look, you know, we have randomized controlled trials by economists showing that when people in call centers work from home, they become on average about 13% more productive mm-hmm. and their health is likely to quit. We have lots of evidence that both performance and satisfaction can stay as high as they would be if you're in the office. If you get to work wherever you like, as long as you're in the office, maybe three days a week. We look at these, these kinds of data points and we think you don't have to be physically co-located all the time. And a lot of leaders say, I just don't trust people. Or, you know, I, I just don't feel like we're going to have those random conversations at the water cooler, you know, that lead to great ideas. And I think now we're seeing, okay, we actually can make this work, but the questions are all around how to make it work better. Mm. And so I guess we could start with that one. What, what are you seeing? Here in New Zealand, we are seeing that for some organisations and teams, it's optimising work performance because there's less interruption. They have inputted meaningful exercises into their team meetings. So for example, if you've got a team that's split over locations, that's now bridged the gap and everybody is joining in in the team together. And you can kind of get a personal element to perhaps work that you normally wouldn't. So I think you know, perhaps someone that's a segregator where life is completely not introduced into their workplace. You know, I'm sure that's very difficult internally for them, but it also gives the teammates an inside look into that person's life and they become more than the job. So I think that's really, really interesting. I also think organisations are having to shift and move their people in roles in terms of reprioritising work so that they're economically viable through this time. And so then it's making people go, what's most important, how do we be effective as a team? And I think sometimes those pause points when you have to think about that rather than going automatically run-of-the-mill is really useful. Yeah, I think so too. You know, that dynamic reminds me a little bit of one of my favorite concepts from social science, which is the the idea of burstiness. So when I think about burstiness, it's the sense that a, a collaboration is literally bursting with energy and with ideas. There's evidence that when software teams that are, are not co-located, when they can develop a pattern of burstiness, they're more productive, they're also more creative. And so you rewind and look at this data and ask, okay, what is it that gives you the burstiness? It turns out a really simple step can move you in that direction, which is just being online at the same time. You don't even have to be on video conference or on the phone. Just knowing that you're each logging in to, you know, to email or to Slack or whatever your, your messaging platform is for a couple overlapping hours every day is enough to increase that, that pattern of burstiness and in turn make teams more effective and more innovative. And I thought, when I first saw these data, I thought, okay, I know why this is. People are able to build on each other, right? So if we're all in line at the same time, you throw out an idea, I can immediately elaborate on it. You know, then all of a sudden, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. That's actually not the dominant mechanism in the data. What seems to matter more is it's motivating to know that other people are waiting to respond to you. So I'm maybe generating some lines of code or I'm drafting a report 
And just the idea that you're sitting there ready to receive that and respond to it, that's energizing to me. And so that increases my confidence. Is that connected to somebody is there to support me or is it different, Adam? I think that might be part of it. It seems to be a feeling of, of responsiveness. So there's a sense that we're in this together. It creates a shared purpose. It means that if I don't follow through, if I start procrastinating, then I'm letting you down. Mm. And so that seems to keep me on track, which I think is cool. So this is to me a really simple step that most teams could take is to say, all right, look, we're all working at odd hours now, but let's pick a two or three hour period during the day where we're all going to be online. And we hope we'll get some of our best work during that period. How do we help produce creativity and innovation when we're not in the same room together, when we are all in our different places? I actually think this is easier than a lot of people think it is. So my favorite research on this is about not brainstorming, but brainwriting. You probably know we've spent about half a century. I want you to talk about it. Sorry. All right. I'm going to, I'm going to tell you something you already know. Here we go. So half a century of research on brainstorming groups show that if you take five people and you have them brainstorm in a group together, if instead you put those five people in separate rooms, you would have on average gotten more ideas and better ideas if they brainstormed solo. And this is surprising to a lot of people, but if you break down the mechanisms, it actually makes a ton of sense. As far as I know, three big problems in brainstorming groups. Number one is is called production blocking, which is basically the idea that we can't all talk at once. And so some people are not going to get heard. It's usually the introverts, the people who are in lower status or lower power positions who might come from underrepresented backgrounds. And so we miss out on ideas that way. Problem number two is ego threat. People are afraid of looking stupid or being made fun of in a group. And so they hold back on usually the most unusual, most unconventional ideas, which sometimes are the most creative. And then third is is basic conformity. You get in a group, you start to see what's popular, and then immediately people converge and you lose out on divergent thinking and diversity of thought. I think that's especially problematic when you have power differences in the room. I like to think about it as the hippo effect. Uh, the effect of the highest paid person's opinion, yep. where you know the moment that person speaks, everybody else feels pressure to jump on that bandwagon. And so I think the best antidote that we've studied to this is brainwriting, which is we all generate ideas independently. We submit them. And if there are big power differences in the room, we might even submit them anonymously so that I'm not worried that you're going to judge me. And then afterward, we let the group do what it does best, which is the group evaluates and then decides which ideas are really worth refining. Mm. So we could all brain write. And actually in, in video conferences, this is much easier than in a room, right? Because we can all submit in a chat and it feels much more natural than, hey, we're sitting here right now, but why don't we just pass notes to each other instead of having a real human conversation? Yeah, it's interesting. My, my husband's an architect, Adam, and um, they do that when they get big pieces of work. They have in-house competitions that are anonymous. So everybody from the you know university intern through to the CE submits their ideas. And then, oh, that's so cool. And then whoever's got the best design they pick and they all work on together. They've got an amazing sense of collaboration and team in the work that they do. What I think is also compelling about that is I worry that a lot of times the ideas that get implemented are not the best ideas. They just come from the people who make the best pitches. Yes. And so once the ideas are submitted anonymously, you, you often end up rotating so that the person who ends up explaining the idea is not the one who generated it. So the person who's you know, the most persuasive or the best at selling ends up pitching ideas sometimes that are better than their own. Yeah, that's a, that's a good addition. I will tell him that. <laughs> Bring it on. Try it at your own risk, though. Next item is leadership, which is how do our leaders best serve their people in crisis? Yeah. Well, that, that's the second bucket of questions that I'm getting a ton of. And 
this is a time when, you know, when legacies are really forged. In a lot of cases, we see leaders who have, you know, historically not risen to the occasion saying, okay, this is my moment to decide who I am, right? What kind of person do I want to be? Am I going to be the leader who invites people to a video conference? And then all of a sudden, they get locked out of their email and they're told they're all being downsized, which mm-hmm. has happened in at least one company here in the US. Or am I going to be the kind of leader who goes so far as to say, you know what, we're running a hotel business right now. And you know, obviously, we can't employ everyone you know, in those guest services jobs because our hotels aren't in operations. But we're going to open up our hotel rooms for uh, first responders who are health and safety workers. Yeah. And we're going to go and place employees at partner companies that are hiring. Mm-hmm. And you know, I think that kind of response, obviously, is what we're looking for from leaders. I think this is going to define reputations of leaders and legacies of companies for decades. So if you break that down, then Adam, is that around your ability to be clear-headed and agile, to think about the large picture moving forward rather than perhaps being deer in the headlights? Like what are the components that help create that leader? I guess I would think about this first in terms of the dynamics of giving, taking, and matching I've been studying forever. So, you know, I think when a lot of people get into a crisis, there's a temptation to feel like, you know, we're in a world of scarcity right now. And so I've got to think everything is zero sum. And I've just to take as much as I can. And we saw that early on, right? We saw people hoarding supplies. The here in the US who bought over 17,000 bottles of hand sanitizer, right? Which is insane. A lot of people will say, okay, I obviously don't want to be selfish. I want to be fair. And so I'll do something for you if you do something for me. The problem with that mentality, especially in a crisis, is it ends up being very transactional. If I do help you, it feels like I didn't really care about you. I just was, you know, was trying to get something back. And you know, I'm just sort of keeping score on some kind of balance sheet of credits and debits. I think what we're looking for is, is a spirit of generosity where leaders say, you know what? I'm not worried about what I'm going to get back. I'm not you know, strategically trying to build customer loyalty or employee commitment. What I'm doing is asking, you know what? when the world is really hurting, what do we have to contribute? When I think about our products, our services, our core competencies, what can we bring to the table that would help? Mm-hmm. And then offer that because that's why I work to begin with, right? I have a mission of trying to make the world a better place than I found it. But I'm imagining, Adam, that generosity with their team is more than tangibly giving, that it could be giving their time or giving their emotional validation. Is that correct? Oh, yeah, I think so. I think when a lot of people think about generosity, they think about it way too narrowly. It's just not financial giving or philanthropy, Right. It's giving ideas. It's making introductions, saying, you know what? I know that there are people I'm connected to who are in a position to help, even if I'm not directly. I can try to open some of those doors. It may be one of the most amazing things I've seen here is a couple of years ago, I was brought into to co-founding a knowledge exchange platform called uh, Givitas. And the idea behind Givitas is we want to make it easy to give and seek help in five minutes a day or less. You know, it goes right back to this point we were talking about earlier, where a lot of people just don't know how to ask. But there's another barrier as well, which is even if you can get over the shame of asking for help, you often go to the people that are most accessible to you, who are the friendliest, uh, who are the easiest to reach, as opposed to the best expert or the most connected person in your network. And so you end up getting worse help than you should because you, you go to the wrong people, essentially. And so our idea here is to say, you know what? Let's get out of this trading favors person to person. Let's think more about what's called generalized reciprocity. 
which is I'm going to help you without expecting anything in return, knowing that if I do that, I'm investing in creating a norm or a value system where everyone's going to do that. And that means we all have a greater chance of getting the help we need. We've been running now Give It To Us platforms in companies. We've done it at universities. And it's amazing to see the kinds of, of requests that come out. I actually saw a couple of weeks ago, I had a former student who said, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to build a platform that will allow people who want to volunteer to find places to contribute if they're not healthcare workers. And within a few minutes, five people jumped in and said, I've actually been looking for a place to volunteer. And this is perfect. This is meta-volunteering. I can volunteer to help create opportunities for other people to volunteer. And you know, I think those, you know, those kinds of problem-solving efforts are a huge part of what it means to be a giver. So if we look at leadership and I mean, we look at generosity, we look at decisive decision-making at the moment, we look at vulnerability, authenticity, you know, like you look at all of those leadership factors. My question is, is it purely come down to the leader in terms of how successful they are? Or is there a match between the leader and the people they serve? And my thinking of that is around our Prime Minister, Jacinda Ardern, who is worldly acclaimed at the moment, I think, for being a brilliant leader. If we yeah. took Jacinda out and we put her in the US, would her success be the same? Or because the culture is different, would it have a different dynamic? Oh, I, I hope it would be the same. <laughs> I, I, I'm really torn on this one. I think on the one hand, we overestimate the influence of individual leaders. So going back about 35 years, there's, there's a body of evidence on what's called the romance of leadership where you know, we, we love to, to tell these great man and finally also great woman stories of individual leaders and they're heroic and they're inspiring and they make great movies. The reality is though, oftentimes charisma is much more a product of success than it is a cause of success. So if, if you study leaders who are judged as charismatic, their companies don't necessarily perform any better. Their countries don't necessarily end up more prosperous. But when countries are doing well, when their economies are flourishing, when companies are succeeding, their leaders are judged as more charismatic. And so I do think we need to be mindful of that attribution process, right? Things are going well. Why are they going well? Our leader must be a genius. Our leader is so inspiring. That being said, I don't think we can underestimate the importance of leadership in this moment. Mm. And we're seeing around the world, you're an incredible example in New Zealand. I think Angela Merkel is another great example in Germany of uh, very scientifically minded leaders saying, okay, look, we've got to look at the data and we have to act quickly and then continually evolve the way we respond to this crisis mm-hmm. and communicate as transparently as we can with people, even when we don't, when we don't have all the answers. And I think you know, we, we're seeing the results of that kind of leadership right now. You asked about the fit between the leader and the context. And this is something we've been studying in organizational psychology basically as long as the field has existed. Yeah. And the, the story that comes out of this is kind of interesting which is oftentimes what cultures will choose is a leader who fits whatever the value system is. Mm-hmm. So I'll give you a concrete example of this that we see in companies a lot, and you can extrapolate this back to government. We think about one of the major dimensions of leadership is the question of, do you tend to be more of a task leader or a relational leader? Mm-hmm. Task leadership is, is usually about vision, strategy, goal setting, basically competence and getting things done. Mm-hmm. Relational leadership is much more about engaging and empowering people. It's building connections and it's, you know, including people and involving them and listening to what they say. And it's, by the way, it's possible to be both. But in general, people who score high on one style of leadership tend to be a little bit less likely to, to do the other. And so you can start to classify leaders in terms of, are they more task-oriented or are they more relationship-driven? 
The data on this in companies suggests that if you're going to bring a new CEO into the table, then if the culture of the company is mostly relational, the CEO will actually add more value if the CEO is task-oriented. Right. Because the CEO is basically enriching the culture by bringing in something that's absent, as opposed to just cloning the culture. And I think this is the opposite of what most companies do. It's also the opposite of what most countries do. Right? We favor the leader who fits into our culture as opposed to the one who's going to fill the gaps in our culture. So I guess that makes me wonder, I don't know how this would all transport. Where would you land? Well, it's really interesting you saying that because Jacinda Ardern didn't win the majority of votes at our election. We're a coalition system and it was a centre-right government that got the majority, but they couldn't form a government on their on their own. So that's really interesting, especially when you look at the, the percentage of people across the board, far higher than election numbers that are now backing and supporting her. But I think Jacinda is a relational leader. You know, who knows what she does in her office behind closed doors, but... I think one of her humongous strengths is building relationships. And we saw that with the mosque attack, uh, the March 15th shootings, and we're seeing that now. So that that might be an interesting fit between where New Zealand was at voting in our government and what Jacinda has brought to the table. That is endlessly fascinating. And, you know, I think we would never want to gather data this way. But since we're facing this crisis, I do think we're going to learn a lot as social scientists, you know, from studying how leaders respond. I will say, you know, those of us who live in America, there have been a lot of conversations about Jacinda Ardern and about just your, your system more generally in New Zealand, where we look at this and we think, wait, you can, you can just not appoint a leader who is elected? You can remove a leader between terms? How does this work? And how do we get that? <laughs> so, I think a leader that Facebook lives in her jumper after she's put her baby to bed. Is- it was amazing. What was that? It was a sweatshirt? I was like, I sometimes I don't even know if I can be seen in my own house in a sweatshirt. And to do that in front of a whole country, I, I love the humility and the humanity of that. Yeah, yeah. Um, also, didn't she do a press conference for children to answer their questions? The scientists, yep. Amazing. Yep. I mean, just, yeah, it's, it's been really inspiring to watch from afar. And we've got a nurse who um, supported Boris Johnson when he was in hospital, and she personally messaged her to say that the country was proud of her, you know, so she's pretty amazing. Wow. I want to ask him, you know, I come into organisations and I work with leaders and I talk about the importance of self-care and if you're going to look after your people, you need to look after your own well-being. And I think we could take this to leaders in a household, so parents, we can take this to politicians leading our country, we can take it to organisational leaders. And my wonder is, have you had any thoughts or is there any research that maybe I'm not aware of, is can that overemphasis on self-care, look after yourself before you look after others, can that actually become a burden and another pressure on leaders to add to their list of things that they need to be doing, especially in times of crisis? It's such an interesting question. Yes, I knew I was going to get one interesting question in here. Oh, you've had, no, you've had multiple interesting questions. <laughs> multiple. Uh, you're, you're on a roll, Jackie. I, I think... My first instinct is no. From the research I've done on self-care and from all the studies I've read on this topic, I think that self-care becomes a burden when you don't do it. Mm -hmm. So if you think about leaders neglecting their health, if you think about parents not taking the time to exercise or maybe even just interact with friends from time to time, that's when stress starts to build up. I don't think it should be a burden. I think it, you know, for a lot of leaders... Especially if you have, you know, if you have more on your plate than you have time for, it has to be blocked out in your schedule, mm. right? There has to be time dedicated toward eating healthy, toward exercising. Mm. But also, you know, I guess another kind of self-care is just reflection mm. to say, okay, I don't have that much thinking time in my day. 
potentially. And, and what am I going to do to take care of, of whether I'm, you know, I'm dedicating enough thought, mm. uh, enough careful consideration to the important decisions I'm making that are affecting people's lives. We know, and you've seen so much data on this topic, we know people tend to systematically make bad decisions, you know, when they're stressed. Uh, under stress, we tend to revert to our dominant response, which is usually, you know, back to your idea of, you know, of our amygdala taking over, which is usually the, you know, the extremely emotional, the less carefully considered response. And so, you know, I, I guess I worry more about the lack of self-care than the burden of self-care, but I'm curious, what is it that led you to think it might be a burden? Well, I'm thinking self-care is important for us all. And it becomes useful when it's habit because we don't then have to think about it and expel mental energy, creating new habits, creating pause, creating that time for recovery or mini recovery, which is so critical to clear thought. And I thought in a crisis right now, if somebody is thinking and planning and got all this extra load that they don't normally have, and then they're hearing in this moment, you need to be looking after yourself and they don't normally do that. They're then adding mental load on top of mental load. So absolutely, we all want to have well-ingrained habits. So when things hit the fan, we've got good self-care mechanisms that we are already reliant on that just continue going. Yeah, I think that makes sense. It, you know, it reminds me a little bit of, of how I reacted when when sleep evangelists a few years ago started talking about how, you know, when, if you don't get enough sleep, you might as well be drunk and, you know, people die from a lack of sleep. And, you know, of course, a lot of those claims are not exactly supported by the science, but even some of the more scientifically grounded claims, they left me in this position where if I traveled and, you know, I I was jet lagged and I, I only got five or six hours of sleep, I not only felt terrible, but then I was really stressed and worried that now I was causing myself some kind of brain damage, right? And so it was this accumulation of, I feel bad. And now I, I feel bad, bad about I feel feeling bad. bad. <laughs> and I'm meta-anxious about the whole thing and it's yes. very uncomfortable. And I think that in that sense, self-care can, you know, can probably be a burden. I wonder though, I like the idea of it becoming a habit. Mm. I like the idea of, you know, if, if it were as instinctive as brushing your teeth every morning and every night, it would make all of our lives a lot easier. But I think some of the acts of self-care that we all need to engage in are just not that simple. It can't be done on autopilot. Mm. Um, they require real effortful thought. And so I think that you know, sometimes we, we need to set aside time for them. I think you've, you've nailed something that's very, very significantly overlooked and that needs to be studied. Mm. In my line of thought at the moment, without data behind it would be, how does that become one of the things that are important in your to-do list? And then if there's yeah. a river hang, how do you get other people to help you with that? Because the self-care need, needs to be part of your top priority. And I think a lot of people yeah. have taken this, lock, we call it lockdown. I'm not sure what you're calling it in the US, but they've taken lockdown as a reboot, you know? So there are people, I've seen yeah. people running, exercising, talking with their family, you know, than perhaps we wouldn't normally do. So potentially we've actually got a good reset at this time. Adam, when we go back to normal, for those that have lost their work through this time, there are many here and many in the US, how do they maintain meaning when the world returns to some level of normalcy and theirs is gone? So for people who are then job searching? Mm. Yeah. Well, I think, I guess the, the first thing I would say is we all become more resilient and we find usually the most meaning when we know other people are counting on us. This is one of the reasons I've been so passionate about trying to get people out of a taking mindset and into a giving mindset is, you know, it's, it's actually pretty hard to maintain resilience if it's all about you. 
Mm. You know, if, if I'm just thinking about how do I succeed or how do I get a job, you know, rejections start to hurt after a while. You know, even just not hearing back when I apply for jobs, right? That, that can take a toll and it, it really adds up. But if I know that my, my kids are, are depending on me or, you know, I've got an extended family to support or that I'm serving as a role model for people more junior that I've mentored, that gives me a little bit of extra willpower. And I can say, okay, no matter how unpleasant this gets, right? The process is horrible. I wish I didn't have to do it, but it's for a meaningful purpose. The version of this I always think about when people are working is to say, okay, if your job didn't exist, who would be worse off? And the people you think of, those people are the reason that your job is meaningful. And those are the people to keep in mind when your work gets monotonous or stressful or, or difficult in some way. And I think the job search goes the same way. Mm. Uh, about the people who would be worse off if you could not get a job. And that becomes the fuel you need to stay motivated, to try maybe some unusual ways of putting yourself out there. And actually, um, one of my all-time favorite examples of that comes from a, a friend of mine, Sarah Rob O'Hagan, who is a Kiwi. Do you know Sarah's story? No, I don't think I do. So Sarah dreamed, as I think probably many New Zealanders do, of traveling. She decided she wanted to get into the airline industry. And she took a big test. Uh, it was kind of the industry knowledge and intelligence test. And she flunked. And so she couldn't get a job. And she was devastated for a while. And she felt like this was just the last in a long line of rejections. Uh, she'd been cut from basically every, every athletic team and sport she'd ever tried out for. She was declined for the major she wanted in university. I think her grades weren't good enough, if I remember correctly. And, and you know, now the, um, Air New Zealand says, you know what, you're just not smart enough to work for us. We're really sorry. So what does Sarah do? <laughs> she, she basically starts a one-woman marketing campaign to prove to them that they should hire her. And she reaches out to a recruiter and she says, hey, you know, I'd love some feedback. You know, is there anything I could do to strengthen my application? And then she ends up meeting with one of the, the hiring managers face-to-face and says, look, here are all the reasons, you know, I'm sure you wouldn't want to hire me, but here's what I can do to make it worth your while. And lo and behold, they had, if I remember correctly, they had six positions. They created a seventh position just for her. And it catapulted her career into now she's a, a hugely successful CEO in the fitness industry. And it, you know, it's such an interesting thing to say. One of the biggest things I learned from Sarah as she went through these rejections, and it wasn't just early on job searching. Uh, she got fired early in her career then. She got fired a second time. I had her on a podcast episode last year on my work-life podcast with, with the tech team. And I was asking her, you know, after getting rejected, after getting fired, after getting fired again, how did you stay resilient? And she said, well, you know, something really simple is at first I was beating myself up and saying, you know, I'm not good enough. And then I went from basically blaming myself to blaming them, right? It's not me, it's definitely you. <laughs> it's a bad company, they have horrible judgment, I'm gonna prove them wrong. And then at some point she realized, you know what? It's not me or you, it's us. Mm. When I got fired, when I got rejected, it's because usually it was a bad fit between mm. me and the company or me and my boss. And this is something we've, we've only recently discovered in psychology, that when a lot of people deal with failure or rejection, they basically feel like they're chosen between self-blame and other blame. Mm. We forget that in every relationship, there are three parties. There's you, there's me, and there's the relationship itself. Yeah. Turns out that people who attribute their failures or their difficulties in a job search, for example, to the relationship, they end up showing themselves more compassion. 
They're less hard on themselves. They're more motivated to then try to find a better fit. And so I guess I would say that's, that's a step anybody who's searching for a job could probably take. So I'm going to hold my worth. I'm going to come from a values intrinsic base to keep me moving forward. And if it's not quite right, it wasn't a good fit, but it doesn't mean there's not a good fit out there. Yeah, it's not always about you. <laughs> or them. you go, I want to know if you look back across your life and your career, for you, what's the most meaningful piece of work you've done? Oh, that's like asking who my favorite child is. All of them, all of it. I'm really torn, honestly. I think I'm torn in part because I feel like I've been really lucky to have a chance to share ideas in you know, more than one medium. And so at first I was an author and then I started giving TED Talks and now I host a TED podcast. Well, those different ways of communicating ideas, they resonate with different groups of people. Mm-hmm. You know, they affect people in different ways. There's a part of me that thinks the most meaningful work I've done is probably in the classroom. Mm -hmm. As a professor, the moments that I'm proudest of are the moments when I've had a student reach out five, six, seven years later and say, you know, I was at a really pivotal moment in my career and I wasn't sure what to do. And I actually remembered something from your class. Like, okay, did it ruin your life? Tell me what happened next. And, but just the fact that they found the class worth still reflecting on and then, you know, in some cases, the feedback is it's, you know, it's helped people make a better decision. That to me is, I think, where my work has the greatest impact. And actually, I got one of my all-time favorite emails on this uh, just a couple of weeks ago. Uh, I had a former student who graduated now 11 years ago. No, 12 years ago, maybe. And she wrote to me and she said, hey, I was, I was just listening uh, to your work, work-life podcast. And I wanted to let you know, I've changed my mind about organizational psychology. Hmm, this is kind of interesting. Tell me more. And she said, when I took your class, I thought it was a nice set of ideas and principles. And, you know, it was, it was cool that you brought rigorous data to a lot of these topics. But I kind of thought that if you got your financial incentives right, none of it mattered. Mm. You to motivate people by paying them well. And she said, after my career crashed and burned, <laughs> after I tried, I tried that and it didn't work. And I found out I couldn't buy people's loyalty. That, you know, that I had to build relationships with them, that I had to design interesting, meaningful, challenging jobs where they could help other people and feel like they were learning and gaining a sense of mastery. It was a crucible moment. And I went back, I went through your, you know, your course materials, and I've decided I want to become a great manager. And that, that to me is such a meaningful moment to say, okay, now that's a manager who's going to go on and make some people's work lives better, or at least ruin fewer people's work lives. Out of everything you have contributed to the field, for you, what's most important are the personal stories, which are based in relationship. Oh, no. No? No, no, you're right, you're right. But I don't want that to be true because I will always value the quantitative data over the stories. I think what's hard, though, is when I think about... So Give and Take's been out for seven years now. Originals has been out for four. My first TED Talk's been out for four years. I've just started now to see the, you know, the long-term reactions that some readers or viewers have had. And I've been teaching longer than I've been you know, doing this whatever public intellectual work. I don't even know what to call that. What is it that we do? I call it science communication. I love that. Okay, communicating science. Yes. So I've been doing that much. I've only been doing that for seven years or so outside of you know, just, just the ivory tower. And so 
I think in some ways uh, I'm biased toward the stories because I have more of them and I've had more time passed to collect them. Yeah. But also I think the, the feedback that comes from, from students is just more vivid because there are relationships there. I haven't met most of the readers of my books. I have no idea who's out there listening to my podcast or watching these talks. And so I think that it's just, it's more tangible with the people I actually know. And and so that's the only thing that makes me question your analysis there. What do you think? Well, Adam, I think from someone that you didn't know before you met me an hour ago, I am a listener and reader that has hugely valued from your work. And it has informed (laughs) lots of what I've done and shared with New Zealand. So there are many things that you've contributed, which I'm very grateful for. Well, I appreciate that. Tell me um, what thing I've done that's actually helped you and how, and then answer the same question back for me about what you think you've contributed that's most meaningful. Okay. So for, for me, out of all of your work on a personal level, option B, which you wrote with Cheryl Sandberg, struck a real personal chord. I love the concept that, and I'm a type A personality. I had the ideal picture of what my life wanted to be and it's taken many turns along the way. And I think there was real truth in that book, not only from a realistic optimism perspective or how we be vulnerable and talk to people around the hard things, the elephants in the room, those small, simple techniques like write three things down at the end of the day that you've accomplished if you want to kind of grow your self-confidence. I think it was a book jam-packed that helped me in my life. I have given that to a number of people in my family that have suffered huge loss and probably has been the book I have recommended more than any other in my work. So, you know, it was a validation of things that I know each, but it was also personally very useful. That is a huge honour. I I mean, it's a book I wish we didn't have to write. That just came out of a devastating loss. But Cheryl said to me last week, she said, you know, I think the reality of this pandemic is around the world. We are all living option B now. Mm. Nobody wanted this. We all wish it had never happened. And we, at the same time, realized we're stuck with it. And so we've got to try to make the most of it. Mm. And I think that that, (laughs) in some ways, that's a lot easier said than done. Mm. So how about you? What do you think uh, is your most meaningful contribution to date? I have to think about that, Adam. You didn't come with your answer pretty prepared. You knew you were going to ask me. No, yeah, I knew I was going to ask you, but I didn't have one for myself. To be honest, again, probably similar to you, Adam, my most meaningful contribution is when I have touched somebody's life individually, whether that's running workshops on mental health or resilience I do a lot of media work here and it's not being on the media, it's the email I get afterwards. I did an interview once on loneliness, making the distinct difference between you can be physically alone but not lonely, you can be surrounded in a room by people and feel alone. And a woman emailed me, she lived on a farm in the South Island, you know, she had a community around her that felt really low and really lonely and she emailed me and said, you made my normal okay. You know, you made my reality heard, validated, and I'm now going to do something about it. And like, I I still have that email and remember it years later. So for me, I don't know if it's specific moments, but it's been able to use all of this theory and research and transcend it into everyday chat that people can go away and go, actually, that will be useful in my life, or that's going to help that relationship, or, you know, that for me is what I'm proud of. I love that. You should be proud of that. Uh, I've actually watched a bunch of your videos. And ah. I think you have, you have a remarkable skill for taking complex ideas in, in psychology and 
and in social science more broadly and making them immediately digestible and actionable for people, which is something we need a lot more of in the world. So if your mission is science communication, you're nailing it. You know, you also, you just touched on something that I find really interesting, which is when I first started doing the research that I started way back on the motivation to make a difference, which, you know, which led into, okay, how do we get more people to want to contribute to others? I had this, this question that seemed like a little bit of a paradox, which was, is it better to affect a lot of people a little or a few people a lot? You know, for me, this is a big question around career choice. Mm. You know, do you want to help people in a very meaningful way, but, you know, have a limited number of relationships? Or do you want to do work that touches lots of people, but it's maybe a little bit more fleeting in its impact? And I found overwhelmingly that where meaning came from was in, in the amount of impact, not the number of people. So it was, it was basically how much you helped each person, not how many people you helped. So I should be a one-to-one therapist, not a Yeah, therapist. exactly. So if you have the patience for that kind of work. That's not the career path I've chosen, Adam. <laughs> No, no, but you could do the same thing helping people in organizational settings, right? I think the, the point for me was you don't need to write a book that millions of people read. You don't need to count the number of views that a video gets, right? The question is, are there a few people whose lives have been affected in a significant and lasting way by what you've shared? And if the answer is yes, that gives a tremendous amount of meaning to your work. Yeah. Wow. Good chat, Adam. And look, you let me go way over my 40 minutes. <laughs> I hope I hope there's something useful in here. Oh, Adam, I think there will be. And, and really, this was a way of me. Well, I reached out to go, how do we help New Zealanders at the moment? Because there are a lot of people that are struggling. And as I said in my email to you, it's, I think, a different struggle to the rest of the world. You know, we don't have an overrun medical system right now. We've had a very good public health response. But we do have a lot of people that are economically hurting and businesses needing to shut down or change and shift and adapt. And I think this will be very, very helpful for them. You be the judge, but I, it means a lot that my work piqued your interest and uh, I sure appreciate your engagement and your thoughtful and highly novel questions. Uh, thank you, Adam. I hope you have a lovely evening over there. And enjoy your afternoon to be continued. Thanks, Adam. See ya. Bye. I'm Jackie Maguire. And you've just finished listening to the pilot episode of Mind Brew. If you enjoyed my discussion with Adam and would like to hear more, I need your help. As the decision to continue production will be dependent on the feedback we receive from this pilot. So please share this episode with your network and head over to iTunes to subscribe, rate and leave a review. It's so very much appreciated. Thank you and hopefully I see you again.